the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to answering your Bible questions or life questions or anything that's on your heart and mind. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free if you're outside the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. And thankfully, it's not wet out there today. You can do it most safely by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our phone number, 340-9585. Because it's Wednesday, we've got our midweek Bible study tonight in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 19. We start tonight. Uh, It is a very applicable study for uh, those of us living thousands of years after the fact, but it is uh, an important chapter. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. So, ladies, it's a day that we set out especially for you. Speaking of ladies, and especially for you, uh, another reminder that this coming Saturday at 10.30 till about 2 o'clock is our annual Ladies Fall Luncheon. Uh, Paula will be speaking, sharing her heart, and um, it's always a fun time. We'll have a packed house full of ladies. We'd love to invite you. The cost is $20, and that's just to pay for food, and you will love the food that's being served. Um, but it's really great to get together in fellowship, and and especially as the Lord's going to speak to you through His Word as Paula brings whatever the message is that the Lord's put on her heart. So that's this coming Saturday, 1030 until about 2 o'clock. One other comment. This is for the men out there. We have our men's retreat coming a week from this Saturday. It's actually a week from tomorrow. Uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit again the rest of this week. Uh, but we'd love to have you come. Um, it's price is inexpensive as we can possibly make it. It's at Camp Buckner, which is a little less than two hours away. Uh, and you will be blessed. And uh, if you're worried about, well, I don't know anybody at the church, don't worry about it. They're good guys, they're friendly guys, and you will be at home without any problem at all. So lots of stuff that's going on. Well, let's get right to questions that have been sent in. Here is our first question from Dale from our mobile app. And he wants to know, do the birds in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, and the birds in Matthew chapter 13, verse 32, have anything in common? Do they mean the same thing? Dale, they don't mean the same thing. Of course, the birds in Matthew uh, chapter 13, um, the, the birds that are, are used as symbols and parables always represent evil. Always, always, always. In Ezekiel, it's a completely different thing. Um, Birds of every kind indicate uh, that this prophecy is speaking not just of David's descendants by birth, physical Jews, but of Abraham's descendants who are 
uh, what I call family by faith. In other words, that's reaching all the way down to Gentiles, people like you and me, um, who will become God's family. Of course, Abraham believed God, uh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, we believe uh, the living word of God, Jesus Christ, and we're the birds of every kind. This is a prophecy that there will be Gentile inclusion into the church. Uh, there's another fa- phrase in that sentence, uh, I think, Dale, that makes some sense. And that's all the trees of the field. Uh, this refers to a lot more than just Jews or Gentile believers. Uh, every man, every woman in the world will know that Jesus Christ is this great king. There'll be no excuses. There'll be no exceptions. The setting for this prophecy is a dark day for Israel. In this particular prophecy, there's no new good news for them to hear at all, uh, at least for those who lived in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's time. This is a captivity prophecy. And what he's trying to do is say, yeah, it looks dark for you, but when it's the darkest, the future with Jesus is always the brightest. This is the kind of news that we always need to remember uh, any time that we're going through something that's difficult. So, Dale, thanks for the question. I hope that answers the question adequately for you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app as well. This one from Richard. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I'm sure you'll probably can do a whole sermon on this question. How does God want us to live in this world versus how the world wants us to live in this world? Well, Richard, um, I, I don't have to do messages on this. The Apostle Paul does it for us over and over and over. But so too does Jesus. In fact, all of the Bible writers talk about living as light. You know, one of the things, Richard, that we lose sight of, it's always been... God's heart, that his people, Old Testament or New, live lives that are separate from the world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world, is the way the Apostle Paul puts it. But at the same time, we're to be lights. The reason God gave the law to Israel, he picked Israel out of all the people in the world. He gave them his law, which was a revelation of his holiness, his perfection. And he wanted them to do the best they could, knowing that they would fail, that they couldn't keep the law. He wanted them to do the best they could so that the world would see that their God really is God. Now, the problem, of course, with Israel is that they began to worship other gods and became jealous of the liberty, the freedom that it seemed that the pagan peoples around them had. And and they, they just, instead of being light to the world, they were sort of grafted into the world and they began living lives that are indistinguishable from uh, the people who don't know God. In the New Testament, Jesus said, let our light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, we're to be, uh, again, using Jesus' words, salt and light. Salt is a preserving agent. Light uh, is is um, to, to bring illumination to the darkness. And unfortunately, Richard, we don't do that uh, as effectively as we ought either. Uh, too often we are trapped in the same kinds of hobbies and things that we do for fun or for pleasure. Uh, we respond too often the same way that people who don't know Jesus respond when we're facing troubles or difficulty. In our anger, we, we lose our temper and we reflect on instead of being a reflection of Jesus. So the way he wants us to live in this world is to live separate from the world to keep our hearts the place of affection and our minds the place of decision on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God now obviously the second part of your question is interesting because you acknowledge Richard that there is a lot of pressure from this world on Christians to accept the things of this world. One of the the major things that we simply can't get away from in the environment that we live in is the issue of, of homosexuality. The world demands that we affirm them and prove them, not just tolerate them. Um, we believe as Christians, or at least we should believe as Christians, that there should be no discrimination um, our laws, our world, um, the enforcement of those laws, uh, regardless of what somebody's sexual orientation is, but to say that it's still sin and will separate you from God is simply an untenable position in the world that we live in now. 
and they will not rest until we raise our hands and surrender and say, we accept you, we affirm you, we love you, God will take you the way you are. And, and of course, the world wants us to make that compromise. I've said this many times in this program because this subject keeps coming up. But the truth is that this is the issue of our time as it relates to people in the church. Sort of a spiritual line in the sand. And we've got to decide which side of it we're on. And as we can see, Richard, we've got a whole bunch of people that call themselves Christians who have already capitulated to the pressure from the world. And they've decided, these so-called Christians, they've decided that it's okay to live an aberrant lifestyle. It's okay to, to live this sinful lifestyle. And God will accept you. But it's not. Aberrant is a good choice of words. And we've got to decide who are we going to believe and for whom will we stand. So the world wants us to live compromised lives. Now, here's the catch-22. Now, I wonder if anybody even understands the catchphrase anymore, but the catch-22 here is that the minute we start compromising, they point fingers at us and call us hypocrites. So the difference is simple. Jesus wants us to walk with him and to be his messengers, his ambassadors to this lost, Christ-rejecting world. The world wants us to put our arms around them and affirm them, oh, just live and live, do what you want. God will work it all out, and together we'll all be in heaven forever. Richard, it's not going to happen that way. I had a question yesterday about the signs of the end, and one of the signs of the end is that people are going to be disobedient to God, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we live in that time right now where the world says anything is okay. We live in the modern-day version of Judges, a time when man did what seemed right to him. And we do it thinking we're so smart, when in fact we're condemning ourselves to an eternity separated from God. So I hope that helps, Richard. Thank you for the question. We'd love your calls at 340-9585. Here's a question from Kelly from our email inbox. Uh, When we get to heaven as Christians, will we still have to answer for past behaviors? I heard a pastor say this on the radio. I thought once saved and a true forgiven Christian, that was all in the past and forgiven. Uh, Kelly, you're both right. I think you're confusing the judgments uh, that believers will stand uh, in heaven. There's two judgments. Uh, Of course, the unbeliever is going to be judged at the great white throne and be sentenced to an eternity in hell. But as Christians, you're absolutely right. Our sins are forgiven. They're as far from us as east is from west. That's why Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, says, come let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet. Talking about a deep, deep blood red. They can be white as snow. That's what being forgiven is. Our sins as far from us as east from west. And we will never answer for our sins because our sins were all judged on the cross at Calvary. Yet there is, Kelly, still a judgment called the Bema judgment. The Bema is a B-E-M-A. It's a a, a Greek word that describes a judgment seat uh, like at the ancient Olympics where people would come and get their reward. And the Bema seat of Christ is going to be that place where we are given or where we lose rewards. So we will be judged whether our works are good or good for nothing. We will get rewards or we will lose rewards, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with salvation or getting us to heaven. And when we have those works judged, they're going to be judged from every possible angle. What was our motive? What what was the desire of our heart? Um, Were we doing it for us? Were we doing it for the Lord? Those are the kind of works that are going to be judged, and we will receive glorious crowns that will cast at Jesus' feet if they pass the test of fire. If they don't, then the rewards will not benefit us. Additionally, Kelly, um, in a lot of those rewards, especially as it relates to calling, there are rewards, crowns that God has waiting for you and for me. Now, if we didn't do it, if we weren't faithful and God had to call somebody else to do it, God's going to give them the crown that was intended for us, give them to somebody else. And I, I say this a lot, and it's hard to understand because we immediately think of heaven as being wonderful. 
but there will also be tears. Now, Jesus is going to wipe them away, but there are going to be tears. And clearly, what we do here on earth is going to help our ability, increase or decrease our ability to enjoy heaven. I can't explain that other than to say the Bible makes it clear that it's true. So we'll we'll be judged for what we did, whether it brought God glory or whether it was done with the wrong motive, but never, ever for sins. So I hope the pastor you heard on the radio, um, that's what he meant, but we will never again have to be um, judged for our sins. And for me, boy, my sins were many, 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 like like Legion and the demons. What's your name? Legion, because there are many of us. Uh, my sins will never come up in heaven. The book of my life will open and all those horrible sins. Every single page is going to be stained with the blood of my Jesus. Let's go to San Antonio and I'll talk with Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm um, studying the book of Ruth, and I found something rather complexing. I know Ruth was a Moabite, and I know that the um, the two daughters of Lot each had one son apiece, a Moabite and an Amorite. Now, if they both had the same father and they were both uh, sisters, how come one was a Moabite and the other an Ammonite? And where did all the rest of them come from if they only if they each only had one child? So that's my okay, question. Can, can, can you give me the chapter, Cindy? Um, cha- uh, Ruth chapter. Um, where's my Bible? It's right here. It's in Gen- my books. And hold on, I have to get to Ruth in my Bible. Well, chapter I believe chapter uh, one of Ruth. I have to look for it. Okay, let me, I'll see if I can find it. So you're talking about, um, well, they would, are you talking about verse two, the man's name was? Okay, let's start, everything's falling apart. In Genesis, it talks about Lot and the two, and the two daughters, and they each had a child from him. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay, and then Ruth was a Moabite. Okay. The book of Ruth. Yeah. Now, Ruth, Ruth, of course, was. I mean, this this takes place a long time after the incident with Lot and his two daughters. So, right. what, what they're talking about is they married women who were descendants of Lot's daughters, and from the descendants of Lot's daughters came two particular people, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And in this particular case, um, um, Naomi, uh, her her name in this book will be Mara. Um, her husband died, uh, and her sons married uh, Moabite women, uh, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Um, and then when um, they died, uh, Naomi was left um, without her two sons and without her husband. Now, I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, what's the confusion, Cindy? The question is, if the two daughters of Lot a long, long time ago only had one son apiece, how did one son be a Mo, be a Mo, he was named, he was the father of the Moabites, and the other son from the other girl was the uh, uh, people of Am, Ammonon. How did all this race come between them if those two girls, which were sisters, only had one son apiece? Well, uh, because they they would have been um, gone to different parts of the world, and they would have married into different peoples. And uh, again, with the passing of history, uh, 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 passing of time, uh, there was there was lots of time to to uh, uh, be sort of grafted in to these other people. So we're talking about um, generations and generations of people uh, between Lot and, and Ruth. So um, they, they just went to different parts of the world. You know, when, when people scattered in Genesis chapter 11, um, they formed people groups, they formed tribes. And uh, these two sons of, of or the offspring of, of uh, Lot's daughters, 
the, the product of their sin, um, they would have scattered and gone different directions and become different people. So it's not just the wives. Remember, it was the, the or not just the mothers, the, 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 the national identity of people was established through the fathers, and they would have gone and married other places. So, so they, they started their own clans, uh, they scattered, um, and, and that's how, how <clears throat> excuse me, that's how it would have happened. So I hope that helps, Cindy. Um, if, if that doesn't answer your question, maybe, maybe I can be a little bit more specific. If, if I understand a little better, ask me when you see me. Okay, no, it, it, it helped a whole lot. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. God bless. Um, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question anonymously from our mobile app. Hello, my wife and I felt called to join a specific church. We have been active members for four months now and are having difficulty in what to do now. We've not seen why God asked us to go here and are having trouble keeping uh, in this church. What advice would you give? Um, Anonymous, a couple of things. And since I don't know you, please don't take anything that I'm going to say personal. Uh, I don't ever know really what people mean when they say we felt called to join a specific church. Um, as a pastor, I've had people come and say, well, you know, we feel called to go and, and, and uh, to leave this church and go to another church. And the, the, the church that they feel called to is a church that's just bad. It, it's not a good church. It doesn't have good doctrine. I know they're not going to get fed. Um, and, and, um, and yet, you know, when, when any time a Christian tells me that God said, um, there's nothing I can say. And so I don't argue with them anymore. Just don't be careful and wish them the best. Um, so so my, my, my initial question would be, what does that mean? I felt called to join a specific church. Um, if it's a good church and you believe with all of your heart that God's called you to be there, then your my advice is to stay there. I don't know what expectations you have, but God, if he called you to be there, has a reason for you to be there. But I want you to explore the possibility that uh, if the church isn't a healthy church, if the word of God's not being taught, if there are not opportunities for you to use your gifts to serve that church, um, then then entertain the thought that you just may have been wrong. Uh, I would say at the very least, go to your pastor and let him know exactly what you've told me. We felt called here, but we're now having difficulty. You don't even tell me what the difficulty that you're having is, so I can't quantify um, that difficulty in my answer. But but with your pastor, you can. You can just ask for a meeting. I don't know a pastor that wouldn't take the time to meet with you. Um, and, and just explain to him the difficulty that you're having, sort of getting ingratiated into the church. Um, God doesn't have to give you a reason why he asked you to go there. I think it's more important that you determine whether or not it really was God. And I think one of the things that we Christians have to do is be very, very slow to say God said to do something. And feeling called or feeling led is not the same as actually God leading. I think one of the things that we have to remember, Anonymous, is that 1 John 4, 1 tells us that we're to test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. If, in fact, you were productive in your church, if you were being blessed by your church, if you're being fed by the church, if you were, in turn, a blessing to others in your old church, why would God call you to a different church? Why would you even be looking for a different church serve where you are be a blessing to the people there and if you've made a mistake the best thing you can do is just rectify it by just going to the pastor and saying we want to rescind our membership because of this but give him a chance to help work your way through this thing Um, if you would write back and give us a little more detail about what the difficulties that you're having are I could be more specific But in terms of not seeing why God asked you to go there, none of that matters because those are the secret things that belong to God. Very seldom will God say, I want you to do something and tell you why. He just wants you to do it. It's a test of your faith. So whatever trouble you're having, you need to talk to your pastor and ask him um, 
what his explanation is for the struggles that you're having, and maybe he can give you some some clear direction. Again, with more information, none of us, I can give you a little bit more help. But but for now, just be careful for everybody in the audience. Be careful about how, how we're led and and what we feel. Um, there's just no reason to leave a church where you're being productive and where you're you're growing in the grace of God and in the knowledge of that grace. Um, if he has a reason for you to leave, he'll make it real clear. But if you say God said, then you're also obligated to stay. So check it out. I hope that makes sense. And please, if you'd like, give me more information. We are inside one minute, so I don't have time for another question to the other side of the break. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love to have you call. Remember, our ladies' uh, fall luncheon is coming up this coming Saturday at 10 o'clock, 10.30 till 2 o'clock, and we would love to have you. Um, um, there's still room. We'd love to have you. You will be blessed. We have 30 minutes left in the program on this Wednesday day, this Wednesday program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We will see you in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. We have only 30 minutes to take your phone calls and answer your questions. Here is our first question. Actually, I have two, and they're kind of related. So I'll, I'll deal with them together. The first is anonymous. The second one is from someone named Bryn. Um, anonymous says, if God is benevolent, how could he allow innocent suffering, especially when young men and women are taken into sex trafficking? And then Bryn's related question is, how do you proclaim a good God to someone who's just suffered catastrophic loss? A couple of things that we really need to understand. God has already proven that he is good, that he's benevolent. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believed in him would have everlasting life, wouldn't perish. Imagine that. Why would God do that if he wasn't good? If he didn't love us, why would he give his only son? I think Anonymous and Bryn, both of us, both of you rather, what we've got to do is settle in our minds and in our hearts once and for all that God is good and not tie his goodness to our circumstances. God created mankind with the capacity to choose. Are we going to obey God or no? He didn't make us little robots. He gave us free will. He gave us the capacity to choose. Now, what the enemy has done is taken that capacity to choose and turned it into evil. And sex trafficking is as evil as it gets when young men and women are enslaved, really. It's as evil as it could possibly be. But why would we even for a moment blame that on God? Why would he blame, why would we who know him blame him simply because of circumstances? Jesus said in this world, we will have tribulation, we'll have trouble. Jesus said people are going to hate us. They're going to insult us. They're going to persecute us. Well, why? Because the world is evil. God didn't even keep his own son from being suffering. Read Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 50 and and 53 in particular. God didn't even keep his own son from suffering. So why would we expect that we have a right not to suffer? So it's true, there's a lot of evil, but evil is created by man. Man has seized the opportunity given by free will to turn what God intended for good into evil. So yes, he's benevolent. Anonymous shift to settle that once and for all. When we see things like sex trafficking, when we see things 
like people who are oppressed. Well, our message is the only message of hope that they have. And I know that in particular with the younger generation, sex trafficking has become a big issue. But but the best thing you can do as a Christian is to first pray for them, second, live your life for Christ, and then get active in sharing Jesus with those who are victims. Don't just sit around remorseful that these terrible things happen. Somebody's got to do something. Be the person through whom God can do something. Offer your body to Jesus for that issue that's on your heart. I had a meeting in this office yesterday with a woman uh, and some people in our church, a family in our church, who has entered the foster program. Now, they're fostering to adopt, and they've done that. But, but if you really want to help kids that have been enslaved in sex trafficking, then become a foster family. That's just one way that you can help. But go out and minister. Don't just sit on the Internet and read about these terrible things. Go be Jesus' hands and feet. And the only way you can do that is to accept the fact that God has proven his goodness, his benevolence, once and for all, beyond any and everything. Now, the related question from Bryn How do you proclaim a good God to someone who's just suffered catastrophic loss? You have to proclaim a good God. Don't deny the loss. Don't deny the grief and the pain. Part of my Bible study tonight is going to deal with this very issue. But you have to give hope, and the only hope is in a good God, a powerful God, a God who's one day going to come and set things right. And for both of you, When you go out and share with people about this good God, you've got to also remember that he's a just God and a holy God. And one day he's going to come and set everything that's breaking your heart, everything that's currently wrong. He's going to come and he's going to set that all right. And if we understand that, if we really believe it, then our job is to go out and witness to these people, to share the gospel with the people who don't know him. Because if God were to come and set everything right today, they would be lost forever. You talk about a real catastrophe. For God to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So tell people about this God. But it's our job to give them hope. First, we have to live in hope. And I think we just miss the point If all we do is focus on all of the terrible things that happen, we don't deny that terrible things happen. In fact, as Christians, that motivates us to get into action, to be used by God for his glory. But we can't focus on the bad without providing an answer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. So not only are we to proclaim it, but but it's our responsibility to do so, Bryn. If you're not convinced God is good, then you don't know him yet. If you're not convinced God is good, then I would say to you, you need to be born again. Because when you realize that God's forgiven you of your sins, when you realize that all the terrible things that you've done will never be brought up against you, you will be declared innocent. And you did nothing to earn that or to deserve that. But God did it just because he loved you. Then you've got a message that will travel well to other people who are hurting and as Christians for all of us it's our responsibility to share our Jesus with the lost, the hurting, the hungry the broken, the needy and the confused and I think this whole emphasis on social justice, one of the real tragedies that this issue of social justice is infiltrating the church is it enables us to look out at all these things that are going wrong without accepting personal responsibility. First, to get right with God and then to be used by God. God will use you, Anonymous, and you, Bryn, to change the world. But how can he do that if you're not convinced he's good? Until you settle that issue, you're always going to struggle with the what-if questions and the why questions. You and I, we can't stop sex trafficking. Slavery has been a part of the plague on this world from the very, very beginning. There's nothing you and I can do about it to stop it, but what we can do 
is individually be sure first that our hearts are right with God and then to be used by God to tell others about what real freedom is. You see, I can, if I wiped out sex trafficking, if I wiped it out completely, if God gave me that power to do it in an instant, all of those people, apart from Jesus Christ, would enslave themselves again to something or to someone else. So I hope that answers your questions, but these are the kind of questions that cause this pastor a whole lot of pain. It's amazing to me how many Christians, I'm talking about real believers, still question God's goodness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How good is that? Until we're convinced of that, we're always going to struggle and the enemy is always going to be pounding on your brain. Anthony says, I have a friend who says, only faithful Christians will be raptured. Is a partial rapture theory true? Anthony, no. Not only is it not true, it's egregiously untrue. Uh, tell your friend he's wrong. Um, I don't know very many faithful Christians. I'd like to think I'm faithful to a point, but truth is we all fall short of the glory of God. We do so continually. Um, if, in fact, Jesus is coming for his own in the rapture, and he is, by the way. Who We have to define who are his. Who is it that overcomes? First John 5.5 5. He who has been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If our sin is as far from us as east from west, positionally, we are as pure as we could ever be. We're not living it practically yet. But positionally in heaven, that's the the vantage point of God. He looks at us and says, How beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. That means if God says he's only going to take those who are faithful, what does even that mean? Perfect? Well, nobody is, so there's going to be no rapture. No, God will not discriminate between Christians who are doing everything right or most everything right and Christians who are doing very little right. If you're washing the blood, then the rapture is our reward, the blessed hope, Paul calls it. And we will be with Jesus in, a, in an instant, the twinkling of an eye. We will be with Jesus. So tell your friend he's wrong to study his Bible. And Anthony, typically, when I hear this, it's espoused by people who are trying to use that as pressure to make you do better or be better. And the only way we can do better or be better is to be with Jesus. So, Anthony, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from James. He wants to know, Pastor Ron, do you use commentaries in preparing your Bible studies? James, not so much anymore. Now, obviously, I did. Uh, I used to all the time, uh, but not so much anymore. Uh, in the sense that um, um, I, I've, I've been through the Bible a bunch of times now, and uh, I've pretty much got my own commentary written on the Bible, so the the, the in-depth study work has been done. Um, so, so other than than just using my own commentaries and outlines, um, my answer pretty much now is no. But there's nothing wrong with commentaries. I use them extensively as I was. Uh, growing in my faith, um, if I am studying a book for the very first time, uh, then I will use a commentary. Uh, but for the most part, uh, anymore, I don't. But I would encourage you to do so. Here's the danger, James. Don't depend on the commentary. Sort of pick it apart. Let the Lord speak to you first out of the passage of Scripture that you're studying. And once he's spoken to you, then use the commentary to sort of govern whether or not you've gone out of bounds. Um, I remember times when I thought I had some great insight um, to, to a particular passage, and I couldn't find another Christian throughout the history of the church that agreed with that. And so I, I have to conclude, you know, 
we stand on the shoulders of giants of our faith. Um, if if I think I have some new revelation, that I'm probably wrong. So I want to use that to study those issues more carefully. So I do use them occasionally, uh, but not like I used to. And they're perfectly okay for you to use. James, you didn't ask this, but let me suggest a really good commentary series. I do this every time I get the opportunity. Uh, the New International Commentary Series on the New Testament. Uh, the general editor is F.F. F. Bruce. And anything you read by F.F. F. Bruce is super solid. You'll love it. Um, uh, he did a couple of the commentaries, I think Hebrews and Romans. Um, on the other hand, um, the the other uh, commentators that, that are in that series are outstanding. And uh, I would get the entire series if I were you. It's a great commentary. Here is a question from Calvin, who just called into the studio. You just said that the Bible says whoever believes by faith will be saved. What does being born again mean? I don't understand that. Calvin, that's the most important question anybody could ask. When I say born again, remember this comes from John chapter 3, and I would um, strongly urge you to to really read the conversation uh, from between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is a religious man. He is Israel's teacher, the preeminent teacher in Israel of his day, a man who was successful, a man who was um, so Jewish that he couldn't be mistaken, uh, an expert in the law. And Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand it either. He said, so what do you mean by born again? How can a man go into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, you of all people should not be surprised when I say you must be born again. And then he said this. He said, the spirit gives birth to spirit. The flesh gives birth to flesh. So being born again means, Calvin, that you're going to die to you. The old Calvin dies. And you do that by confessing your sins asking Jesus to come into your heart and then saying, Jesus, I'm going to mess up again if you don't come and live in me and take over my life. And then when he comes in you, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says that he comes in as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. But the Holy Spirit also has power to live. And from that moment forward, you're living not for you, not to to satisfy your flesh, but instead you're living. You're living for Jesus. The old you dies. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If anyone is in Christ, the uh, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come." And that just simply means that everything from this point forward in your life is going to be about Jesus. It's going to be focused on Jesus. Now, we don't any of us do that perfectly, but what we do understand is that the born-again Christian wants to please God instead of satisfying flesh. A born-again Christian wants to please God as opposed to pleasing people of the world that we live in. So it means to die. Calvin, when we baptize people, we put people under the water. That's symbolically a funeral. We're burying the old man. When we raise him up out of the water, well, that's symbolically a resurrection. We're bringing them up into the newness of life. And that's what being born again means. You no longer live for you, but you live for Jesus. And this is an essential in our faith. Jesus said it to You must be born again if you're going to go to heaven. There's no other way. So this is an issue that has to be resolved in your heart and in your mind. So do me a favor. Read John chapter 3. You don't have to go too far into the chapter to uh, to get into that conversation. And ask Jesus to speak to your heart. And as he's speaking to your heart and you're reading, here's what my suspicion is, Calvin. You're going to be moved by the Spirit to say, Jesus, I need to be born again. If you're not born again, your life is in chaos. Now, it doesn't mean you're not a good guy. It just means you're, you've got an emptiness in your heart, the emptiness that's represented in this question. Well, Jesus wants to fill the emptiness in your heart. And so then you simply say, Jesus, I want my life to be for you and all about you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart, and I will serve you all the days of my life and you will be born again. It's not good enough to be religious. It's not good enough to be nice or to try to do good or be good. You must be born again. 
So, Calvin, you read John chapter 3. Maybe you can call us tomorrow and tell us you did it and you gave your heart to Jesus. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that just came in from Kirby, our mobile app. How many years did the book of Acts span? And how old was Paul when he died? And where did he die? How old was John? And where did he die? Uh, Great questions, Kirby. The book of Acts spanned about, and we don't know exactly for sure, but it was about 30 years. It's amazing. We can read chapter 1 through chapter 28, and we think, wow, that was an exciting six months. It was 30 years. That means between the incidents that are presented in the book of Acts, there was a lot of time, a lot of time just living everyday life, a lot of time moving from one location to another, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. So about 30 years. Now, we also only know about how old Paul was, and with a little more certainty, we, we know how old John was. Uh, Paul appeared to be in his late 50s to early 60s when he died, and he died in the Mamertine prison in Rome, where he was beheaded under the direction of Caesar Nero. So by today's standards, he didn't live uh, to be an old man. Uh, but believe me, Paul, when he died, was a really old man. His body had been beaten so badly. Um, uh, he, he'd just taken so much punishment that he was, he, he, he was much older than the years. He was bow-legged. Uh, his nose was so disfigured from being punched and being beaten that uh, it was just sort of grotesque. He had eye issues, we know, uh, from his letter to the Galatians. Um, but but he was in the Mamertine prison um, in Rome uh, where at the end of his life he suffered a great deal before he was taken to heaven. Uh, the apostle John was completely different. John lived to be the ripe old age of 95-ish. Um and we're not sure where he died. My 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 guess is in Ephesus, um, but he was released from the Isle of Patmos, and and most likely went back to Ephesus. Most likely went back to Ephesus, and that's where he died. But he was a very old man, uh, the last of the original apostles to die, and uh, by the time that he lived uh, and was ready to die. Uh, he would have sort of been the grand old man of the Christian faith. So um, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much, Kirby, for for asking it. We're inside five minutes. If you're going to call, do it quickly. Here is an anonymous question, another really important one. I'm a very busy woman. I'm a wife, a mother, and I have a job. How can I balance everything I have going on in my life with church and what God has called me to do? Anonymous, there are times when we got to recognize that we can't do everything. So what we have to do is the most important things. And the most important thing any of us can do is to be with Jesus. That's where everything starts and ends. That's where we find the balance in everything. There are some times when we try to do too much especially for people pleasers where we we've we've got to do everything for everyone we can't do that here's what i do and anonymous i do this um on a fairly regular basis um once a month or so um just when i'm alone with the lord i'll open my hands and i mean i'm a i'm I'm a person that does these things literally i'll spread my hands out before the lord in prayer i'll open them and say jesus If there's any stuff in my hands that isn't of you, take it out. And then I leave my hands open, and I say, now, if there's anything that I've been doing that you want me to keep doing, put it back in. I think what we've got to do is understand that we can't do everything. The other thing to understand, especially as a woman, you know, we've got this unbelievable standard of the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, You can't do anything. Everything all the time. So focus on that which is in front of you. Your family is the most important. Uh, your job is secondary. Of course, we, we have to work sometimes. So you do your job. You do it as unto the Lord. Um, but 
just make sure that you're taking care of the important things that the Lord has given to you as a, as a, as a ministry. But never, ever, ever sacrifice the things of God. Your time in the Word, your time in prayer. If you're too busy to do those things, you're busier than God wants you to be, and you're on your way to burnout. Time in church serving the Lord. That's our responsibility, but it is also our great privilege. So if you want to be full of God's Spirit, then you've got to be serving your local church. Do what you can. You don't have to do everything. Do what you can. And then watch and see how effectively the Lord will sort of empty you of the the, the superfluous stuff. And he'll just keep you in that place where you're full. Do what you can, when you can, and always keep the main things, the main things. That is important. Let me know how you do. I'd appreciate a response. Well, here will be the last question for the day. It's from Danny. He says, I am a Christian, but I really don't like going to church. I've... Well, I don't have time for this. I'll, I'll come back to this one on Friday. Pause with me tomorrow. I'm a Christian, but really don't like going to church. I've heard you say that's wrong. But why and where does it say that in the Bible? Uh, Danny, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not forsake the assembling together of saints, as some are in the habit of doing. Let me rephrase. Do not forsake the assembling of the saints, as Danny is in the habit of doing. And then tune in on Friday at the top of the program, and this will be the first question that I take. If you don't like going to church... You need to question whether or not you're really a Christian at all. Church is an exciting place. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Date Day Edition program. Ladies, it's your day. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you calling in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.